I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Now, usually I say, use these cards to ask questions. <laughs> and um, I think Bob Fuller thinks that's a little bit rankest. <laughs> so the way he's going to approach it tonight is, uh, that's why we kept the lights up in the room. Uh, he doesn't have slides to show. In a sense, you're the slides. So partway along through his talk, he'll go interactive and uh, not intermediated through cards and be up here deciding what's a good question. Uh, it's between you and him. Uh, if you look at Bob Fuller's book, you'll find a blurb on the back. Or is it on the front? Somewhere. Uh, that I wrote. <laughs> Uh, saying that I think this is one of the really important books. Ah, here it is inside. Robert Fuller's ideas about rankism changed my personal behavior. I think they will change the world in time. It is one of those click realizations that you can't unclick. Everything human looks different afterward, and you have to do something about it. I think one of the reasons Bob is having so much success with getting this dignitarian movement going is one, he knows to just keep bearing down. And two, he knows the history of human rights, of civil rights, and knows where this whole current process fits in with that history. And that's what he's talking about tonight. Bob Fuller. I thought I'd talk about a half an hour and then open it up to questions and cover the rest of the material in that way. Um, mostly, I'll talk about America. These issues do apply globally. An awful lot of human rights are universal rights, but it requires too many qualifications and too much knowledge I don't have to say it all in a completely <clears throat> transcultural way. So I'm going to use America as my, the example of the society in which I think there's hope for a dignitarian movement. <clears throat> the personal is political, as we've learned from the women's movement and every other movement. And for me, these ideas, this analysis, did grow out of my personal history. And since I don't know yours, I'm going to tell a little bit about mine just to remind you of yours. Uh, I grew up in a town in New Jersey which lacked all the usual divides of race and religion and so on. Uh, black people weren't allowed in this town, so there were no racial issues. It was an interesting town, and it was primarily divided into somebodies and nobodies because it was in the shadow of Bell Telephone Laboratories, the greatest scientific establishment in the world at the time. It was just a few miles from there. Half of my friends had parents who worked there, fathers, 
The other half were the poor kids whose parents worked on dirt farms. But we were all white, and so I was not confused by race. Uh, I remember an incident from, from very early years that seared into my brain and uh, came back to me later and that I think is seminal to this project. Every morning we had to show a clean white handkerchief and show that our fingernails were clean before the day began in second grade. And one day Arlene was sent to the hall for the entire day because her fingernails were dirty. And as we went to recess and passed her slumped against the wall near the drinking fountain, I was glad I wasn't in her shoes, but I didn't do anything about it. Uh, some of the kids teased her. At three o'clock she came in and took the bus home, came back into the classroom. And for some reason witnessing this event, uh, I couldn't understand it at the time. I remember thinking, how can she clean her fingernails out there? But that was all. There was no moral judgment or anything about it. Even now, I don't really blame the teacher. That's how it was in those days. The teacher's job really was to separate the somebodies from the nobodies and accommodate the nobodies to lives of routine drudgery. And the others of us, whose parents worked at Bell Labs, and a few of them worked on Wall Street, were on a fast track to college and everything else. Yet on the playground, I noticed that the nobodies really were no less accomplished or intelligent or interesting than the somebodies. And in fact, I sometimes think I was born with a nobody gene because these were my better friends. The, the somebodies were somehow increasingly boring and I found the nobodies interesting and uh, put that all away, went on to try to be like my father by going to studying math and physics and going to graduate school. And then the 60s happened. And like, like many of you and, and many at the time in the academic world, I identified with the groups that were protesting their oppression, their second-class citizenship. And one thing led to another, and I got out of physics and, and went to Oberlin as president, where I was in the thick of three or four simultaneous movements. Of course, there was the black movement, the women's movement, and the student movement. But there was also a nascent gay movement, a movement by students with disabilities. There was no uh, need for a movement about against anti-Semitism, because there was none. 
like many schools, it was an Anglo-Semite college. It was, uh, th that wasn't an issue. That one had been handled. That was one of the seven or eight forms of discrimination that did get handled before the turn of the century. It was obviously not handled until the turn of the century. It was a calamity. But it wasn't as, to have one kind of potential prejudice that was inoperative was instructive. And prejudice against Jews was one of those. Perhaps it be, it's because half the uh, scientists at Bell Labs were Jewish. Uh, but I, I digress. Uh, I want to get to this, go through this list of isms that we have been confronting in this country in the, throughout the 20th century. It begins with anti-Semitism. Then there's racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, ageism, and maybe that's it. You might think of another couple, and there, there's sub-varieties. Uh, in racism, dealing with African Americans was not enough. There was also a Latino movement, and a Native American movement, and an Eskimo movement. And all of these groups were demanding that their, the people they identified with be accepted into the college and treated well and so on. It struck me at some point that all these movements had something in common. That they were all manifestations of somebody's in power, discriminating against or oppressing or treating badly nobodies who lacked power, who were relative to the somebodies weak. So in this sense, whites were the somebodies, blacks were the nobodies. Men were the somebodies, women were the nobodies. Able-bodied people, people with disabilities, straights, gays. Over and over again, it seemed that the distinguishing characteristic around which the second-class citizenship was defined was more an excuse for ongoing predatory behavior than it really was the cause of the discrimination in question. So at some point I was moved to think of a word that would describe all the types of discrimination at once whenever somebodies were taking advantage of nobodies. Whenever, because of rank in a situation that came with power, they could get away with treating people who lacked that power badly. Now, so I'll define rankism as abuse of the power inherent in rank. Now, if we look back at those isms, there's no clear rank involved in them, but there is a more diffuse social rank involved that had been built up and established through decades and decades of practice. And it was very operative for, for blacks and for women and for gays, so much so that if you were a fair-skinned black, 
you would try to pass as a white to avoid the, ra the racism. If you were a woman mathematician or writer in the 19th century, you would adopt the identity of a male so you could get published. If you were gay, you tried to pass as straight. Similarly, nobody's trying to pass as somebody's. It's what we do to avoid the rankism that is endemic in the society. And it takes the form, what it amounts to always, is that we fear someone with more power, greater affiliations, uh, actual authority over us in many institutional settings, that such a person with higher rank will abuse their rank and we will be harmed in the process. Now, I'm not saying that rank is inherently abusive. It isn't. In the military, it serves an obvious function of organizing the troops so that they can fight effectively. In a company, you need someone to make decisions in a timely fashion. In a university, you need to know who the professors are and who the students are. So this is not a, an analysis that invalidates rank. Rank is very often, but not always, necessary to effective organization. And, and when it is, it's all the more important that it not be used abusively because that undercuts its effectiveness in the organization. So, uh, rankism then, abuse of rank, occurs in society where the rank in question is social rank established, constructed, if you will, over decades and centuries even of legal and of legal actions, of habits, of philosophical arguments later found to be specious, but they seem to hold water at the time. And rankism also manifests not in society as a whole, but in every organization within the society where there are ranks. So, for example, in, in a company, the CEO of the highest rank can abuse the rank by extracting personal favors from subordinates. When these take a sexual form, we have a special name for it now. We didn't have one 20 years ago, but now we call it sexual harassment, that being a classic example of rankism. Uh, when a group of high-ranking executives abuse their rank to essentially pad their own salaries or write each other op stock options or persuade the board to do things for them that are, are beyond anything they've earned, then that's a form of rankism. It's the abuse of rank to the disadvantage of employees stockholders and customers. Finally, now in the last few years, the tide seems to be turning against that kind of rank abuse. Executives are actually going to prison despite predictions by many, many people when Enron first happened that no one would ever go to prison over this. So there's a change in the wind. Celebrities are still getting away with murder, but there may be a change there too. I feel it coming anyway. Uh, that's a kind of, of rankism. 
when your celebrity status means that you are subjected to a different brand of justice than someone who's weak and poor. So we have a lot of rankism built into this, our whole system of jurisprudence because clearly the rich can buy a much higher quality defense than the poor. So there are examples of rankism that are society-wide. There are examples that occur within workplaces, within schools, within hospitals, within uh, police departments. And this is a very broad analysis saying that in all its guises, rankism is unwarranted, dysfunctional, counterproductive. It's more than just a moral argument. It's an argument that says, if you want to make money, you'll make more if you have a less rankest company. You'll make more if you have what I call a dignitarian company because you'll have the loyalty of your workers. You'll even have some customers who appreciate the fact that you're treating your workers with dignity and will come to you rather than a company that they know abuses their customers. In healthcare, we're witnessing a revolution in the status of doctors vis-a-vis -vis patients. Most of us are old enough to have gotten doctor's orders when we were kids, and it was unthinkable to violate them. Doctors now are going through a process, not of equalizing their rank with patients. Most of them still know way more than we do, but they are now expected actually to listen to the research we've done on the internet before we come to see them. They're expected to realize that we have support groups and are real partners in our own health care. And the best of them want that. They think it produces a higher quality care if the patients are partners in their own treatment. Doctors are famously abused in the course of their education. And when they finally make it, they often turn around and visit that abuse on people of lower status, like nurses. But it's a general principle about rankism that when it's done to you, you want to do it to somebody else. So nurses, turns out, there are four ranks of nurses. And they're quite abusive to each other, right on down to the candy stripers, the lowest uh, rank in nursing, really volunteers. <clears throat> uh, different modalities of medicine treat each other with disdain and denigrate different kinds of practitioners, the M deities being at the top of the food chain in that regard. Uh, I recently worked with, with several dozen physicians, I have to call them, because there were MDs, there were naturopaths, homeopaths, every kind of path, all sorts of different holistic and alternative medicine people. And they had realized that they were at such war with each other that they weren't really doing the best they could in terms of health care for the society. So they wanted a 
whole day devoted to the rankism that exists within the um, between the modalities in healthcare. And the MDs were leading this. They were quite enlightened MDs, or they wouldn't have done so. Which brings up another point about uh, movement politics. It always takes someone in the oppressor class to get it going because the oppressed are at such tremendous risk if they speak out. When blacks spoke out, they were silenced by lynching. When women spoke out, they were humiliated. Uh, gays were beaten up. It takes some help in the initial stages of a movement from what I call generically the white liberal, the person who is sympathetic to the nobodies in that particular movement and speaks out until they find their voice. Uh, I'm finding so far with regard to the dignitarian movement that most of the people willing to speak out about it are people who do have some power. But the interesting thing about rankism is that we are all victims and perpetrators of this particular ism. It differs from the other isms in that regard so basically. I could look around this room and instantly, and so could any of you, tell who has possibly been a victim of racism in this room and who of sexism. Just guess who would have been a victim of homophobia would require a little interrogation. Can't spot it instantly. Uh, we can pick out people who have been ridiculed for disabilities. But we can't... It, rankism is different because you can be sure that everyone has been a victim of it and you can be almost equally sure that everyone has perpetrated it because it is something that rankism begets rankism. So you can't end rankism with more rankism because the, the feud continues, the ch dynamic just continues endlessly. In contrast to sexism, which you can end with rankism, and that's what the women did at the initial stages. They humiliated men who indulged in sexism, and it effectively suppressed it, but it didn't disappear it. It lurked, waiting for a chance to make a comeback. Because you can't get rid of, sexism is a kind of rankism, and you can't ultimately get rid of any kind of rankism with more rankism. You have to find a way to preserve the dignity of your tormentor while offering correction, and that is very difficult, but not impossible. Uh, let's see, where to wrap up? I want to wrap up my part. I, I want to explain just a bit about dignitarian movement. Uh, it's named it to contrast it with egalitarian movements of the past, which have been seriously discredited by the fact that their embodiments were communism, basically. And these were, in fact, not egalitarian at all. They were profoundly rankest in that the, all the political control was retained at the top. They were the antithesis of democracies, and democracies represent a big step towards non-rankist government. 
They're not all the way to dignitarian government, but it's a big step because it solves the problem of abusive governors by letting them know they will be accountable to the people and we can fire them periodically. And that is a tremendous improvement over an absolute monarch in terms of reducing rankism, potential for rankism. But it doesn't necessarily deliver dignity to all the citizens in a democracy, as we know. To make that next step, democracy's next step, to a dignitarian society, means we have to create institutions and laws which actually protect the dignity of everyone in the society. It's a tall order, but it seems to me it's, it can be realized if we're patient. Uh, if we start at home, start in our own families and our personal relationships. Stuart mentioned it had affected his personal relationships. You begin to catch yourself in rankest acts, acts of superciliousness, of domineering, of denigration, of ridicule, of sneering. You catch yourself acting in a way that is a, is a damaging assertion of presumed rank. Why do we do this? I think we do it because we are predators. We are great predators. Best the world has ever seen, and none of us would be here if our ancestors hadn't been even better at it than other people's ancestors people who were dead, who were eaten. I'm going back now 10,000 years, 20,000 years, when it was really rough out there. But we have a predatory history, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without it. And now we're at a stage where opportunities for cooperation abound if we can retire our predaciousness, if we can get past it. And we have learned amazingly to do that. And countries that have done it, they're called democracies, have turned out to be more powerful than countries that still celebrate predation. Because they enlist more loyalty, more partnership, more cooperation, more initiative, more creativity. I think the same will hold true at the scale of companies, hospitals, and most of all, schools. Schools are places where people go in expecting to be humiliated. Half the kids in school hate it. This is a tremendous indictment of what is the most important function in a society is that half your customers hate it. I still do. You can feel it. And I tried to do something about it, and it's impossible. You can only get a chance twice a century to change education, and it has to ride piggyback on some other movements because the institutions of education are so profoundly rankest that it's like being a black person in the South and complaining about something. You just get lynched, figuratively. 
you don't get tenure. The, the situation in, in our schools today is, and th they'll be the last to catch on because they're so self-satisfied about their marvelous record in civil rights and overcoming racism and sexism and so on. But rankism is their Achilles heel and where it is that academics are going to have to face the music eventually. And realize that from K through graduate school, most students are not doing half as well as they could if we could pull the systemic humiliation and, and, and ridicule out of the system, the elitism. This has nothing to do with excellence. You can have excellence, you can celebrate it, without the ridicule, without the disdain, without the snobbery, without the obfuscation that characterizes so much of higher education. Uh, so a dignitarian movement simply insists that regardless of rank, everyone, every human being has equal dignity. It has some political implications, and interestingly, they're neither left nor right. They're about dignity, and conservatives care as much about dignity as liberals do, at least their own. <laughs> liberals identify more with nobodies. Conservatives identify more with somebodies. So liberals do tend to look after other people's dignity a little more than conservatives. But conservatives care very much about their own. I recently spoke in Boulder where Coming from Berkeley, people liked me before I opened my mouth. They're very progressive there. And I spoke in Idaho, where before I opened my mouth, people were profoundly skeptical. They're very conservative there. And at the end, I felt equally, uh, equal interest from both groups. What would a dignitarian politics look like? Well. A person can't have dignity that can't make a living wage. Uh, enough to take care of himself and his dependents, a family living wage, since you'll sometimes have two people working. And it shouldn't require two or three jobs to make that, make enough money to support your family. So right there, we have what most people would think is a progressive implication of dignitarianism. But it really is just about simple dignity and not exploiting a third of the country, which we are moving ever closer to locking into a permanent underclass. That isn't the America I was brought up in, and it's not the America most Americans want, and it contradicts the American dream. <clears throat> so. I think a political case can be made for doing something about locking one-third of the population into permanent uh, roles in the underclass. Uh, another thing a dignitarian politics would do would be to provide everyone with emergency and preventative health care. This is elementary. And also access to quality higher education. Those are typically kind of liberal programs, but they can be inferred from an assumption of dignity. Uh, another thing, though, that a dignitarian society would embody would be that it would 
protect dignity but not jobs. This goes against some of the support on the left, which are always worried about job security. What you want to protect is someone's, not their right to a job, let alone a lifetime right to that job, as in academia, 40, 50, 60 years sometimes, on the basis of one decision made in the mid-20s. It's a catastrophe. It also prices education out of reach of the middle class because you end up paying these senior professors, who most of whom are dead wood, uh, three times as much as a beginning professor. And who pays the bill? The students who can't afford it. So tenure is the right to a job, not the right to dignity. Everyone has the right to dignity, but you can get that by changing jobs and by facilitating the change of jobs. And by having, obviously I'm not saying college administrators should fire these people. It has to be done in a dignified way as a result of peer review and so on. But all those things are in place and can be made to work. And throughout the whole society we could have dignity security, which would mean you don't just down someone, downsize someone onto the street. You have job retraining programs available when uh, employment levels have to shift due to economic factors. Uh, there are other aspects of a dignitarian society, but the main thing about it is it would have to be worked out by the people themselves. You can't impose anything and, and call it dignitarian. I'm just guessing as to what the process would, uh, would produce. At, at Oberlin, we ran for a year a committee on the status of women that, whose job was to go around and talk to anybody who would listen about ways in which women felt that college was uncongenial, was insulting their dignity. And this committee collected 23 recommendations and took them to the people who had the power to change it. So some came to the president, some came to deans, some went to the board. Some of these changes could be made overnight. Some of them take a year, some take 10 years. Some had to go to the whole faculty for a vote. But it's a process through which any group can create a more dignitarian environment for itself. And it worked. That same process would have to be undertaken in any society that wants to make itself over, transform itself from a rankest organization into a dignitarian one. Now, it's not overtly rankest. A lot of racism wasn't overt. A lot of sexism wasn't overt. It's just uh, de facto rankest. And once these conversations begin, once rank, the taboo on rank is broken and it's out of the closet, it yields an amazing conversation about ways in which people feel disloyal to the organization in question because their dignity is constantly under assault in it. I've seen this happen in universities and hospitals and it's, it always takes some uh, running interference by a senior, very senior person who makes it okay and guarantees safety for these kind of conversations to begin. It takes a chancellor, like, like the one at University of Massachusetts, who initiated this conversation in the whole university. 
or an administrator of a hospital like Kaiser Richmond, which is looking at these kind of effects within that hospital. And it will take that nationally, and my hope is that a political leader will emerge who's willing to move past the old isms and talk about this still largely invisible kind of abuse and discrimination that I'm calling rankism and propose as an alternative that we build a dignitarian society. People are willing to stand up for their dignity long before they're willing to demand justice. But once they're on their feet, they'll work their way towards justice. I see dignity as a stepping stone, a halfway house between the justice that's missing and the justice that we could and, and should create in this country if it's actually supposed to be liberty and justice for all. Let me stop at this point and see if there are any questions or comments. Yeah. You don't, you're not assuming, are you, that it co it's going to cost you more money to be less rankest? Yeah, they do. But it, it doesn't necess isn't necessarily the case because you can, you can increase your loyalty and productivity and creativity. And companies like Intel are famous for abolishing rankism on the technical side of the company where young people are brought in, told from the get-go that, that they are free to attack anyone's idea, no matter how senior. And they try to embody this with a structure of cubicles and leveling, architectural leveling, that makes it easier for the brash 20-year-old just out of computer science school to challenge Andy Grove. So, in, in that limited way, uh, rankism has been effectively abolished in, in certain technical companies, but not completely so, because Andy Grove still makes $100 million a year, and, and the brash young kid makes, you know, tens of thousands. And so his salary, I'm exaggerating, I don't even know, and I think he's retired, but you know how those things go. I mean, the people, when they finally get ranked, the first thing they do is self-aggrandize with it. And that means taking the board on a retreat to a lovely location and whining and dining them and then have a meeting of the compensation committee in which it votes that you should get some gigantic salary increase. And this happens in academia and in companies and so on. And we're just beginning to challenge it now because it's... Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just unwarranted. It's not so in Japan and in Europe, where the, f the factor separating the lowest paid from the highest paid is 10 or 20, or maybe 30, but in America it's 500. Uh, 
I, I don't know what to say to give you specific other examples. One that comes to mind is Whole Foods. Whole Foods is famously a good place to work. Everyone, I, I always ask the checkout people, and I've read about it, and uh, the, it has a CEO who pays himself, I think, 17 times what the janitors are paid, and who has a whole atmosphere of equal dignity functioning in the company, and it's doing well. Walmart is doing well too, and it does not have a dignitarian culture, but it is every month that passes, you feel Walmart getting in hotter water. Cost, what's the other one? Costco, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Costco is, is clearly trying to be much more dignitarian. I predict that just as democracies beat out tyrannies because of the loyalty and the creativity that they contain and promote, so too dignitarian organizations are going to beat out rankest ones. If not, then morality can't be grounded in causality. Then, then morality has to be an add-on. And that is a much weaker defense of morality than if you can argue it's actually more effective, productive, efficient, and cost-saving. One at a time, one at a time in one institution at a time. This is why it's a patient revolution. I don't think it's going to take the form of million man marches. I think it's going to take the form of millions of institutions transformed one at a time as some courageous employee brings up the discussion and forces the boss to, to deal with this new kind of abuse. Now, it may sometimes be ugly, and other times it will be dignified. And when it's the latter, it'll be more effective, because you can't cure race, rankism with rankism. So if the, the victim of rankism is rankest in attempting to overcome it, it won't work. You have to find a way. Now, you usually can. And I've become alert to this and, and look for ways that I can behave that will protect the dignity of the person who is the rankest, while at the same time trying to show them another way. Examples like the head of Whole Foods and Costco, who get stories characterizing them as the anti-Walmart, are also teaching this. But I really don't think it's going to be a mass movement. I think it's, except finally at the political level, it, it could take the form of a candidate for off high office 10, 12 years from now saying, we've come as far as we can go on all the separatisms. We're running into diminishing returns on improving situations for African Americans, for women, for gays and disabled and so on. In order to get at the remnants of all those historic types of civil right violations,
we're going to have to take, generalize the problem and take on this larger problem of abuse of power, period. And that's going to be this candidate's campaign, and he's going to have to give examples of Enron and WorldCom-type bosses, of priests who abuse their rank for uh, personal advantages. So the sexual abuse scandal is a perfect example of rankism. The Abu Ghraib scandal is another example of rankism. Yeah, right. That's where the singularity comes in. Uh, it's a terrible legacy to overcome, except it's amazing how rapidly we do. I mean, if I go back in my own family, four generations, I have out-and-out out racists who would happily have participated in a lynch mob. I know this is true. If I go back to my grandparents, they used the N-word openly, but they would not have participated in a lynch mob. My parents did not use the N-word, and as a result, me and my brothers did not have to unlearn it when the revolution came. My own kids date interracially. That's four or five generations. The thing moves. It's amazing how fast that when a category of behavior becomes disallowed and is no longer condoned, it diminishes at an exponential rate in the society. So three or four generations is enough to really put the kibosh on some of these behaviors, and the, and the corresponding ism goes into the doghouse. If you're caught being a racist now, your career is over, or a sexist. It's still, you can get by with a little homophobia, but within 10 years, that's going to end your career too. Within 20 years, I'm hoping that if you're found to be a rankist, your career will be stymied. We'll see. Who else? Yeah. Well, it, it's a crucial, I have a whole chapter on that subject in the sequel to Somebody's and Nobody's, which is called Dignity. And it's a crucial point. Religions are not necessarily imperious, but they're often fundamentalists. What I'm saying is the, the word fundamentalism is tricky. Some fundamentalists simply cling to their own views and are not forcing them on anybody and not demeaning people with other views. They just think that those particular views are true for them and they're going to humbly follow them. But many more religions proselytize and look down upon people who aren't co-religionists. In fact, it's even spreading to what has historically been the most tolerant, inclusive religion of all time, Hinduism. The, the three Jerusalem-based religions or Mideast-based religions are all proselytizers, but the Asian ones less so. Now Hinduism is picking up the, the, the virus. Uh, it's, it's what I call spiritual rankism, and, and it's got to be lumped in with the other forms of rankism as something that is, uh, we need to, to grow beyond. 
And I think there are many leaders of all these religions who feel that strongly, and there are many ecumenical movements. And even though fundamentalism in its imperial form is much in the news today, and it looks like it's growing everywhere and we're all a little frightened of it, I think it's doomed. But, but nobody's going to church in Europe. What does that mean? A hundred years ago, those churches were packed. Fifty years ago, they were full. Now there's nobody in churches in Europe. What does that mean? It means that with enough education, religion in its more primitive form doesn't wash. It doesn't mean that religion is doomed because there are aspects of religion which can sail right on and which will still have tremendous value. But when religion gets into the business of science, it comes out a very poor second and it loses out to ineducated uh, societies. So I think it looks like it's on the upswing now, but that's mainly because it is allied with certain political causes which do have a certain validity. And where there are many aggrieved people, many, many people feeling that their lives are wasted and useless. And uh, these people use religion as a banner, just like the Vietnamese used communism as a banner, but it really wasn't the communism that was motivating them, it was the nationalism. Uh, Stuart. We've got a huge chunk of it when we've got that, because that's the abuse of power and in ways that are deleterious to people who have less of it. So it's a big agenda. I, I think there is an uh, exponential acceleration in rights. I date the great breakthrough for Western folks as occurring 800 years ago at Runnymede, where the power went from one guy King John to 10, the barons. They figured out how to gang up on King John and threaten him with collective military action if he didn't sign the Magna Carta. So they overcame the absolutist rankism of the king. They curtailed or circumscribed his sovereignty and they set in motion democracy. To get from one to 10 took four billion years or let's say 100,000 for the species, Homo sapiens. Yeah, but it wasn't a real one. I mean, neither was, neither, was, neither was Runnymede a democracy. It was just the principle from 1 to 10. And there was an earlier one, the Greek one. And there were others even earlier in Native American society. I'm always reminded of when I give this spiel. But... That's why I prefaced it by saying in our immediate Western tradition, because 400 years after Runnymede, they had moved from 10 barons to 400 aristocrats, had a say. They had a parliament. And 400 years after that, they moved to universal suffrage for people over 18. 
That's where we are now. It was a long, hard slog. I mean, the, the women who started the campaign for women's suffrage didn't even live to see women get it. I'm thinking of Susan B. Anthony on our dollar and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who wrote the book about it that motivated Susan. They both died before 1920 when women finally got the vote. And <clears throat> then there was another 50 years before the vote was lowered from 21 to 18. And in that time, blacks were actually given the vote instead of just in principle given the vote. And I see it as an exponentially accelerating thing. Next up is going to be people under 18. Not that they should actually cast the vote when they're three days old. I understand that, or even five years old, although the, the Berkeley uh, high school kids are lobbying for the actual vote now. But more important than that is representing the political interests of these human beings. They are unrepresented, and that's why they're screwed. Any group that doesn't have voting representation, their interests are ignored by the politicians. We have to find a way to give electoral weight to the interests of young people, else the society is going to ossify and calcify as people live longer and longer and vote more and more their own special interests. So John Vasconcellos, our senator from the Bay Area, uh, got that idea from somebody's and nobody's and introduced a bill in Sacramento to give young people the vote, but it was killed in committee. Uh, did, I, I just want to finish my, Stuart's point. Uh, Stuart, I think <clears throat> it's not going to take a thousand more years. I, I think if you look at it from Runnymede to the Parliament to universal suffrage and the bumps in the road that got us there, I can see, uh, and all that does is create a kind of democracy which is only so-so when it comes to delivering dignity. So delivering dignity ups the ante. I think of it as democracy's next evolutionary step. I think it's going to happen within 50 years because countries that don't do it are going to be beat out by countries that do. So it's the great question is, is America going to, does, do we have one last gasp in us? Are we going to, we've led the way on a lot of these movements. It's almost unthinkable to think fondly of America these days in California, but actually most of the world still thinks we're great, ex except for our foreign policy in the Mideast. <clears throat> most of the world still wants to move here. And, and I think uh, we might just possibly be the place to pull off a dignitarian society first. If not, the countries that do will take the leadership. Yeah. There's going to be everything we saw to defeat the black movement is going to happen ten times over to defeat the dignitarian movement. Every possible chicanery and conning. And finally, people are going to see through it. 
and, and it isn't going to work anymore. There'll come a magical moment, as there have been in every one of these movements, where someone simply voices the obvious in a non-defensive, dignity-protecting way, and everybody says, yeah. Like when, when that fellow in the McCarthy hearing said, have you no uh, decency, Senator McCarthy? And he said that in front of the whole nation watching on television. And McCarthy died three weeks later. I mean, the movement collapsed. He literally died. You know, is the very oppositional nature of those systems an element to a dignitarian society? No, the opposition isn't. You can have a left and a right to steer a group, first favoring more power to authority and then tacking to uh, circumscribe that authority a little more. Usually the left is the party that circumscribes power and the right is the party that uh, invests authority in things. And both tendencies are crucial to the survival of a nation. So it's silly if we talk as if the right wing were all a bunch of jerks. They're actually defending the locating of authority so that the society can function. And the left is equally crucial. If one party, if the right gets its goes to its ultimate, it becomes fascist. If the left goes to its ultimate extreme, it becomes a giant Quaker meeting, which nothing happens. And they're immediately conquered and had for lunch by some country, some other country. So you need both tendencies, so this is not, in, you wouldn't advocate the abolition of partisanship, but it does advocate the abolition of extremist, fundamentalist partisanship, ideolo ideological kind of commitments that become blind. Those are not useful. So what about the reform of the system, though? The reform of the system is vital. We right now have a very rankest electoral system whereby a money is buying votes. And so that's what the bill was supposed to deal with, the Keynes and, and Feingold's bill was supposed to deal with, but it doesn't go far enough. We have to get the money out of politics because that's an inherently distorting and rankest feature of the political process. And, and return it to a real democracy, you know, and we've got to find a way to get the 50 million people who aren't 18 yet get their interests represented. That's a big change. Germany has an interesting solution to this, by the way. They're going to, they're proposing, and this is just a mechanism, not, I'm not favoring this mechanism. The mechanism Germany's proposing is that a mother of one gets two votes, a mother of three gets four votes. Now it does accomplish, it does give some voting weight to the interests of children. Just the mother. Yeah. Oh, you can, you can give the father some, you know, that's a detail. It's a detail. Often the children are actually with the mother, you know, and, yeah. Kind of things, yeah. You know, there's this idea that the evolution is driven in the direction of predation, but isn't human Homo sapiens evolution very heavily in the advances in cooperation, like yeah. the development of language, yeah. uh, social evolution, uh, ability of relationships? So uh, definitely. So it's like one of the main thrusts of human evolution is the area of cooperation. Definitely. Yeah, we still just have a lot of predatory behavior left over. And it turns out cooperation is more powerful than predation. We, we've got to wrap this up in the next minute or so. Let me, why don't you ask a um, last question? How do you get past the 
okay to try to be the next Michael Jordan. He was a great basketball player. This analysis celebrates excellence. And if he's ranked number one, so be it, until someone else is a better basketball player. That doesn't affect anybody's dignity. When I lose a race on the track, I don't feel I've lost my dignity. I've just lost the race. Now, as for the strutting that comes with it, that is rankness. That is demeaning to other people. The fact that Michael, that, that these superheroes get all girls, that they get all money, all these things have rankest elements to them. But the fact that he's great at basketball doesn't. And as for the Hummer, uh, it's kind of a statement that I am, you know, a somebody, and it's a form of strutting, and it's, uh, I would expect to see its, it's, it's disappearance in time. Just as overt racists and good old boy sexists are not in favor anymore, but they sure were when I was young. Well, I'm glad to stay around and ask, answer any more questions or talk if uh, anyone has any. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.